We'll open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. We are going to just dive right in. We have a long passage this morning that we're going to be working out of. And we are right now in a short break from the book of Romans uh, for the summer, an eight-week series called Gospel Reset, where we're just refocusing ourselves on what it is that we ought to be about as a church, where we ought to root our identity. So we've been talking about, about a number of things, the, the glory of God being that overarching reality in, in all of the universe and all of history about the gospel of Jesus Christ being the centerpiece of all that we do as a church. And we spent three weeks talking about corporate worship. And this week we're moving on to the topic of evangelism. And and this account in John chapter 4 has a lot to teach us about evangelism. Because I think if if we were to make a list as Christians of the things that we're not uh, crazy about doing ourselves... um, Evangelism would probably be pretty high on that list for a lot of us. We, we, we bring up evangelism, or maybe even you think about coming this morning and knowing that this was the topic, and, and your thoughts turn to maybe, number one, feelings of guilt. I don't do this enough. I don't do this well enough. Maybe it turns to feelings of fear. Are they going to tell us we need to be doing this stuff? I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. People are going to have questions, and I'm not going to know how to answer them. And so I want to just turn to this well-known account here in John chapter 4. It's one that's often referenced when it comes to evangelism, although I think the emphasis ends up being placed in the wrong spot when it comes to this story. But just to see what this can do to, to instruct us and what true evangelism looks like. Because the truth is, church, unless we are a church that's about evangelism, then we are missing the point. The, the Christian faith is an evangelical faith. The, the, we are called to take this gospel to the world. And so let's read together now from John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given to you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give to him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water, that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we thank you for this good, pure, and perfect gift. We pray, Lord, that that by your Spirit, through your Word, you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us this morning. Praying even, Lord, that those who are dead in sin, like this woman, like these townspeople we read about, would cause, be caused to live by your Spirit. Pray for myself as I proclaim your Word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the final command of Jesus before he ascended into heaven is is one we know well as the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 18, we read, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We know that commission well. But notice that it doesn't say, go into all the world and tell them how sweet Jesus is. Go into all the world and tell them how nice he is and how much better he will make your life. Go into all the world and tell them Jesus is out there and he just loves you exactly how you are. 
No, it makes demands. This, this gospel proclamation makes demands if one is to be saved. All people everywhere must become disciples of Jesus. If you want to be a disciple, if you want to be saved, that means you must observe, you must obey, you must live by all that Jesus commands. This is the mission of the church. Go into all the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus and commanding them to become disciples, obedient disciples. Well, what, what is this message that we are called to proclaim? What is this message that saves, that produces obedient disciples? Well, before we get to that message, we need to get to the first word Jesus says. Jesus says, go, go therefore, go therefore and make disciples. Because all authority belongs to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the call for every Christian. Go, make disciples of all the nations. The preeminent example, of course, of this going is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Mankind was hopeless in its sin, as we have seen in the book of Romans, unable to keep the law of God, unwilling to keep the law of God, unable to break itself free from its solidarity with all the rest of humanity in sin and condemnation and judgment, unable to free itself from its pit of sin and filth and not even wanting to, powerless to fulfill the righteousness that God requires, standing condemned, only condemned by God, because no one is good, no one is righteous, all deserving of judgment and death and hell because all are sinful and because God is perfectly righteous and holy. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we we all were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But Jesus condescended. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus became a man so that he could live in our place, live perfectly, obediently in our place and, and die in our place so that all who trust in him could be saved. And that, that this, this going on Jesus' part, this, this coming to earth as a man, this salvation that is being offered in this gospel of, of the work of Jesus Christ, it's not just for good people. The reason we know it's not just for good people is because that's not a category of people that exists. There are no good people. This salvation is for God's enemies. This salvation is for those who are in rebellion against him. That's all of us. That was all of us. No one is righteous. All need a savior. And the woman in this story is no different. And the people from this city in this story are no different. Jesus had come to be the savior of the world. His message, his life, his death was for every race, every people group in the world, for every tongue, every tribe, Every nation, every person that has ever lived, every man, woman, child around the globe is in need of this salvation from the wrath of God because every man, woman, and child is a sinner. Jesus came to be the way, to be the truth, to be the life, and it's only through him that one can be saved. It's because God the Father loved 
the world that he sent his son. It's because Jesus loved the world that he came, that he took on flesh. And we see an example of that in this story where, where we are told that Jesus traveled through Samaria. That's not a thing that the Jews did. The Jews traveled around Samaria. They wanted nothing to do with the Samaritan. A good Jew did not travel through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half-breeds. We don't have time to, to go into all of the reasons that they hated them, but they were false worshipers. And yet we see Jesus travel right through Samaria. He had come even for them. And so he went through Samaria, and he came to Jacob's well. As we find him in this story, he is at Jacob's well. He's tired, and he's thirsty. It's been a long journey. It's the heat of the day. His disciples have gone into the city to buy food, and this Samaritan woman comes out to the well all alone to draw water in the middle of the day. This isn't just any woman. It's a Samaritan woman. These Samaritans, these, these false worshipers, She's not just a Samaritan woman, she's an outcast even among the Samaritans. The, the shame of her own immorality went before her. She was shameful even among the shameful Samaritans. And this woman approaches the well and Jesus is sitting there and he begins a conversation with her. And the conversation is basically that he promises he could give to her living water. He says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water here in this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, she's intrigued by what Jesus says. He's initiated this conversation with her. She's intrigued, but she misunderstands. And so she says in verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and have to come here again to draw water. She wants what Jesus has to offer, but she's not understanding what it is that he's offering. What, what she wants is to have him meet her physical needs. I don't want to have to come to this well anymore. I, I don't want to come when all the other women come. Nobody comes on their own. It's just me. They come in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. They come in groups. I come alone. So I don't have to deal with my sin and my shame and my embarrassment. It would be great if you gave me this water and I never needed to come to this well again and drink again. She, 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 she wanted what she thought Jesus was offering. She didn't want him. He was offering himself. That's not what she wanted. He was talking about salvation where her sin and shame could be completely removed from her. What she wanted was just to avoid feeling her sin and shame. And friends, that's what the world is like. That's what the world is looking for. How can I avoid feeling the weight of my shame? How can I avoid feeling the weight of my sin? She was in a terrible state. She was dead in her sin. She was loaded down with shame. Jesus was offering freedom from all of that, but what she wanted was just something that would cover it up. Just something that would make it so she didn't have to feel it so much and stand face to face with it. She needed to be brought to an understanding of what she really needed. What she really needed was not to have water that would never make her thirsty again so she never had to come get water. She needed to know what her true need was. She needed to know who it was that she was speaking to at that well. And so Jesus confronts her with these 
realities. These are the realities that all people need to be confronted with. The same realities we see in this story. We, often this story is used in the context of evangelism and the woman is the centerpiece. Just do what she did. That's how evangelism is supposed to look. We ought to be looking at Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? Well, he, he uncovers these realities, these realities that she needed to see, that she needed to deal with, these realities that everyone must come to understand if they are to be saved, who, who they really are. This woman needed to know who she really was, who Jesus really is, and how we must respond in light of that. That's what he reveals to her. So we're just going to use that framework of how Jesus deals with that woman this morning to consider the topic of evangelism. These three realities that must be understood in order for the unbeliever to be saved. And the first is the unbeliever must come to a knowledge of their personal sin. They must. This is, this is something that even when, when evangelism is taught in, in clinics or in books or in podcasts or whatever, this is one of those things that they will tell you you must certainly avoid. You must certainly avoid making people feel shame of any kind. You must certainly avoid making them, you know, making an issue of their sin. That's going to come on the back end. But we're just going to talk about the really uplifting, goosebumpy kind of stuff up front. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus does here. Notice how abruptly Jesus transitions the conversation in verse 15. He's just said, you would have asked me for living water if you understood what was standing right in front of you. And she said, hey, I'd like to have that water so I don't have to come to this well anymore. And Jesus says in verse 15 or 16, go call your husband and come here. He had just met her, but of course he knows her. Jesus knows her. He knows everything about her. He sees into her life in a way no one else possibly could because Jesus is the God-man. He knew her better than she knew herself. And so he says, go call your husband. This is designed to, to draw out a response from her. He knew what her answer was going to be. And the woman says in verse 17, I have no husband. Technically, that's true. She didn't have a husband. She's not married, but that's not the full story. It doesn't reveal her true situation, that, that might have been the answer she had learned to always give. Oh, I'm not married. P perhaps it, it was a way for her to avoid uncomfortable conversations, to getting too close to what her, her life really looked like, what her past looked like, to, get, to, to avoid having to deal with the shame that, that she was living with. That's what shame does. It causes us to conceal our sin. It causes us to hide it in the dark. The world wants to hide their shame. They want to avoid their shame in any way. But consider the movement. We just survived June, not that long ago, Pride Month, here in these United States. It is not a coincidence that the word pride is what is used. That's not a coincidence whatsoever. It is, a, it is an act, a, a, an attempt to cover shame. To not come face to face with shame and to, and to turn it around, that, shame does that. But when the light of Jesus shines on us, exposes our sin, then we don't just have to hide our shame and cover our shame and try not to look at it right in the face. Our shame can be removed. Our shame can be healed. So it goes on in verse 17. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. 
So Jesus acknowledges her statement is true in itself, but there's more to the story. What he does is expose her sin. This is how he begins with this woman. In if we'll call this his evangelism. He exposes her sin. Jesus isn't being mean here. So what the world wants to tell us, and even other Christians who want to tell us we should never talk about sin, is that that's a mean thing to do. It's a mean-spirited, judgmental thing to do. No, Jesus isn't being mean. He's loving this woman. Jesus is loving this woman as he exposes that thing she is most ashamed of, as he brings her shame right to the surface. Unless he reveals her sin to her, she cannot be saved from her sin. Jesus only saves sinners. That's the only way salvation happens. He never comes to a person and the person says, I'm basically good, and Jesus says, I'll co-sign on that. Great, you're in. He only saves sinners. People need to know that they need saving. So he says, you've had five husbands. The one you now have isn't your husband. The sense of the words here is not, boy, this woman has endured a lot of tragedy. Her husbands have all died on her, or they've left her, or they've run off on her. It's clear what the real story is by the way she's currently living. This, this sixth guy she's with is not her husband either. It's, he's revealing her character. He, he's revealing that this is who you are. You are a serial adulterer. You are a fornicator. You are an adulteress. She was deep in sin. She was on the path of destruction. She was going to hell, and Jesus reveals it all right up front. Even among the Samaritans, her life was a scandal. And Jesus doesn't try to soothe her shame. He doesn't try to alleviate her shame. He exposes her shame. This was loving her. This was loving her. He didn't tiptoe around her sin. He named it. He called it out right up front. He revealed the sin in all her previous relationships if it had been that she just had been married a bunch of times and those guys had all died, there would have been no point in Jesus mentioning that, would there? The fact that he did bring it up shows that she's morally blameworthy in every one of these cases. Whatever else was going on, she's guilty as well. It's not an innocent woman. This is an, adult, an adulteress that is standing before Jesus. She has had five husbands in her past, She's currently committing adultery with the man that she is living with. This was a pattern of unrepentant sin in her life. And because of it, her life was marked by shame. And the reason her life was marked by shame is it was shameful. Sin is shameful. We ought to feel shame over our sin. She should have felt shame. It was God's grace to her for her in this moment to feel the weight of her shame collapse on her. That was God's mercy. That was God's grace. Jesus confronts her and he brings up these past relationships because unless she's convicted of her sin, she cannot be converted. This is the reality for all the world. Unless we are convicted of our sin, we cannot be converted. Friends, think back on your own conversion. And that moment of feeling the crushing weight of your guilt before the Lord. That moment of, of overwhelming shame for your rebellion and your sin. And maybe you're thinking, I never had a moment like that. 
By God's grace, let's pray that the Lord saves you this morning. Because you cannot receive salvation if you never know that you're in need of it. Jesus speaks plainly to her. He exposes her sin because he loves her. He brings her shame right to the forefront. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't pretend it's not shameful. He does it because he loves her. Tim Bailey says he didn't avoid or excuse her adulteries. Rather, he exposed her sin in all its horror, and this was used by the Holy Spirit to turn this dear woman to faith and repentance. Plain speaking did not turn the Samaritan woman off to Jesus or his gospel. Naming her guilt and shame was no obstruction to her repentance, just the opposite. See, what the world would tell us, what the experts would tell us, is if you talk about sin... If you talk about people's guilt and condemnation, that will turn them off and they won't even want to become Christians. Friends, it's the Holy Spirit who saves, not our crafty words. You're not smarter or better at evangelism than Jesus was. Those those who are ignorant of their sin have no need for a Savior. They see no need for a Savior. J.C. Ryle says, Never does a soul value gospel medicine until it feels its disease. Never does a man see the beauty in Christ as Savior until he discovers that he is himself a lost and ruined sinner. People need to see their need for salvation. This woman needed to have her sin revealed. The first reality that every unbeliever must understand in order to be saved is the reality of their sin. That's where the gospel message begins. Consider, as we've gone through the book of Romans and Paul's in-depth unfolding of the gospel, how much time was spent, how much time did Paul devote to just locating us in such graphic detail at the bottom of this pit of filth and shame and corruption and condemnation. That's where the gospel message begins. Second, every unbeliever must come to know the reality of true worship. So how does she respond to Jesus exposing her sin? Well, in a very interesting way, perhaps not a way that we would expect, although I would say it's the way people respond. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So he just uncovers, brings to the surface all her shame, all of her sin, all of her moral depravity. And she goes, it seems to me that you're a prophet. She knows he couldn't know this about her without God's help, of course, So she reasons he must be a prophet, but that doesn't mean she's convicted of her sin just yet. She does what so many people do when they're confronted with their sin. They change the subject. They deflect. They distract. It's such a common thing. It's one of the most common things is if I'm talking to a person and they find out I'm a pastor, they'll ask me some weird, obscure question. As if to, let's make sure this conversation doesn't go anywhere uncomfortable. Tell me what you think about the end times and uh, the nation of Israel. Or, you know, some, some just weird tangent just to make sure we don't get into anything that's going to be uncomfortable for them. This is what people do. We deflect. This woman doesn't want to talk about her debauchery, so she decides, I'm going to talk about geography. In verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Isn't that weird? All of her sin is exposed by this guy who's never met her before. 
And he tells her all about her sin and her shame, the thing that has, has made her isolate herself from everyone else. And her first thought is, so is this mountain a good place to worship? Should we be doing it where the Jews say? She's deflecting the charges that have been brought against her by bringing up what was one of the most contentious issues of division between the Jews and the Samaritans, the proper place of worship. We don't have a lot of time to, to really go into that. But basically, both sides in this argument acknowledged that God in the Old Testament had said, I'm going to pick the place where you worship me. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes and put his name and make his habitation there. You shall, and there you shall go. So they both agree. God has said where we're going to worship him. The problem is, Deuteronomy is where the Samaritans stopped with the scriptures. They rejected the whole rest of the Old Testament. It was just the first five books that they accepted. And so they missed that God actually did then reveal where the place was. Second Chronicles 6.6, where he tells David, build the temple in Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans don't know that. They've rejected that revelation from God. So they chose to build the temple on Mount Gerizim. They had a number of reasons that led them to think this must be the place. We don't have time to get into that. But the key point is they were wrong. And the reason they were wrong is they had rejected God's revelation. They had rejected the scriptures. They had rejected God's word. They had rejected everything else that God had said throughout the Old Testament. And so the woman tries to deflect, okay, which one is it? Bring up this debated topic, but Jesus doesn't fall for the, the debate. He's not tricked into a debate. He corrects her here in, in three ways, which we'll just touch on briefly because they, they're important to our sharing of gospel truth in the world. The, the, the first thing he corrects is that the issue of where to worship is about to become irrelevant. He says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, so this whole debate she's bringing up to deflect from what's really going on in this conversation is about to become meaningless because true worshipers, the kind of worshipers that God seeks, are going to be able to worship him anywhere. They don't need to go to a location to worship him. The, the hour that Jesus is talking about here is the hour of his death and his resurrection and his exaltation. And so Jesus is saying when that hour comes, the hour of his death and resurrection then the place of worship is no longer going to be the issue at all. The temple in Jerusalem is going to be a thing of the past. The only place that God is going to meet with people is actually no longer going to be a place at all. It's going to be a person. It's, it's in Him. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and only Him that we can meet God. This woman needed to hear that. And this world needs to hear that. It is Christ alone, through whom we can have any relationship with God whatsoever. Second thing he told her is that she, as a Samaritan, worshipped in ignorance. Very insensitive. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, since you mentioned the debate, you guys are wrong. You Samaritans are wrong about God. You don't worship the true God. You worship in ignorance. You, you need revelation to worship God. God had revealed himself in Scripture, but the Samaritans rejected most of it. 
Most of what God had said, they rejected, and so they worshiped in ignorance. They didn't have salvation because salvation was revealed in the Scriptures, all of them. Of course, this isn't just important for this woman to hear. The world needs to know this. Where is it that we find true information about how we might be saved? It's in the Word of God. We don't get to just make it up. Oh, I've lived a good life. I've been a good person. No, God has revealed the way of salvation in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has revealed it to us in his word. People need the living, supernatural word of God. The third thing, then, is he told her that her whole approach to worship was wrong. Verse 23, the hour is coming, is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So God doesn't just care that we worship him. God cares how we worship him. He's actually cared enough about it to reveal it to us in his word. True, true worship requires the right approach. We must worship God in spirit and truth. First, worship must be based in the truth that God has revealed. You must know about God if you are going to worship him rightly. He must be worshipped truthfully. You can't truly worship him if you don't truly know him. And second, worship must be in spirit. That's not a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's a reference to man's spirit. In other words, God must be worshipped from the inside out. It's not only a matter of right information about God, although that is essential. He must be worshipped from the inside out. External motions of worship don't make worship. Worship must be not only true, it must be heartfelt. The state of our heart matters in worship. And so God must be worshipped with the heart and the mind, in spirit and in truth, God the Father Almighty is seeking worshipers who will worship him as he is, as he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And if we're going to worship him truly, the kind of worship that he accepts must be with both our mind and our heart. And again, the world needs to know this, just like this woman needed to know this. There aren't just a list of things we can do and not do, and that gains us salvation. Likewise, it's not a matter of just feeling certain ways about this God who's out there somewhere, but being committed to, to, to not worshiping the God of scriptures like all those hypocrites in the church. No, there, there, there's one kind of worship that God receives. Third, every unbeliever must come to know the reality of Jesus' true identity. So she has one more response to Jesus as she continues to deflect. He continues to press in and she continues to steer the conversation in verse 25. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. So the Jews thought the Messiah was coming as a conquering war hero, that he was going to overthrow the Romans, that he was going to establish an earthly kingdom, but that's not how the Samaritans thought about the Messiah. Again, all they had were the first five books of the Old Testament. They thought of the Messiah as a truth revealer. He's going to come and reveal all the mysteries to us. And so she says the Messiah is going to come, he's going to tell us all things. 
She doesn't know how to respond to what Jesus has said to her. So she says, I'll just wait for the Messiah to come. You've, you've raised some interesting points here. But I'll wait for the Messiah to come. He'll make sense out of all of this. He'll make sense of all, all you're saying. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She thought he must be a prophet. He'd revealed things he couldn't know. But he says to her, I am much, much more than that. I am much more than that. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. Even more than that, in, in, in our English translations, it says, I who speak to you am he. That word's not actually there in the Greek. It's just in our English translations to smooth out the language. Literally, though, Jesus says, I who speak to you am. What he's doing is referring to himself with the name that God had revealed himself with in the Old Testament. I am the self-existent one, the one who simply is. And so Jesus is revealing, I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just the Messiah. I am God. And every person must know who Jesus really is if they are going to be saved. We can't be saved by a Jesus who's merely a good example. We can't be saved by a Jesus who's merely a miracle worker or some sort of moral goal to be shooting towards. No, it's only the God-man, the one who rules, the one who reigns. Well, the woman's response to this revelation from Jesus is abrupt. No more deflecting. Verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is her message. She, she has been confronted with the reality of her sin, with the reality of her desperate situation. She has been confronted with the reality of of the only remedy for that, the only kind of worshiper that the Lord will accept. She's been confronted with the reality of who Jesus is, and her message now to the townspeople is, come and see. She just invited them, come, come, see for yourselves. Come, not, not on the basis of my testimony, but on the basis of what you're going to find out when you meet Jesus. She's eager now, all of a sudden, to spread the news about Jesus. Now, we don't know, has she fully repented? Has she trusted in Jesus savingly at this point? But we do know her disposition has changed. She stops deflecting. She leaves her water jars. She runs back into the city, and she begins to tell everyone she can find, these people who she's been avoiding, hiding from, because of her shame, she now boldly begins to tell them, come Come and see. It seems as though her shame has been taken away from her. She, she went to these people she tried to avoid because of her shame. And she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, knowing full well when they hear that, they're thinking, we know all the things you've been doing too. Oh, but her shame's been removed. She can't help in, in, in light of the, the revelation that she has received to say, come, you come too. You, you come and see. So the town's intrigued, probably because of this woman. What they knew about her, the change that had happened in her, 
Verse 30 says, a large group assembled to go out to the well to meet Jesus. And as they're coming, Jesus, who, who now, his disciples have returned and, and he's alone with them. He says in, in verse 35, in the second half of the verse there, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. He has proclaimed the truth to this woman. She's been radically affected by it. She has went and called to people to come, come with her and come and see. And Jesus now teaches his disciples for an immediate response for them. He is, he is sending them on a mission right now. They've been chosen not just for salvation, but to take the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. They're to sow the gospel. They're to reap a harvest of souls. He wants them to feel the urgency of this moment. Right now is the time for the harvest. So he says, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for the harvest. Well, what are they going to see as they literally lift their eyes up? You just see him, literally. Lift your eyes up. Here comes the harvest. Walking towards us. Just beyond the field. Just beyond the crops. Between the well and the town are all the townspeople coming towards them. And Jesus says, get ready. This is the moment you have been chosen for. Look at the harvest. It's ready. Verse 36, he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together for here the saying holds true one sows another reaps I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor others have labored and you have entered into their labor in other words disciples this isn't the time to hang back and be lazy the harvest is ready grab the sickle of the gospel and get to it here it is, right in front of you. This is the time to be working. This is the time to be rejoicing. And friends, we need to hear that message. This isn't the time for laziness. It's not the time for cowardice. It's the time to work. It's the time to rejoice. Your labor in Christ is not in vain. It lasts for eternity. You need to be aware of that. You need to know that. The one who initially sows the seeds of the gospel into someone's life is quite often not the one who gets to see those seeds bear fruit. In other words, they don't always see that person become a Christian. They, they don't always see the outcome of their labors. And sowing is hard work. Sowing can be discouraging. You don't always see the fruit of your labor. But when, when Jesus says, now is the time when the sower and the reaper rejoice together because they're partners in the work. Every Christian is dependent on other Christians for the success of their labor. So don't be discouraged. If you've been faithfully laboring but haven't seen your work in the Lord bearing fruit, you need to know this. You are on the same team as the reaper. Their harvest is your harvest. Their rejoicing is your rejoicing. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to us. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
He told me all that I ever did. Notice that word, because of. On account of. They believed because of. Because of what? They believed because of the woman's testimony. They believed initially because she told them about Jesus. Now, she did not speak a perfect word about Jesus. How much did she know about him at this point? Not a lot. One of the things that keeps us from from even sharing the good news of our hope in Christ is that we are sure people are going to ask us questions that we don't know the answer to or we are going to get something wrong. What would have happened if they had started asking her a bunch of questions? Best case scenario, they're going to get a bunch of I don't knows from her. Hopefully she's not going to just start shooting from the hip and think she doesn't know. She didn't tell them all that there was to know about Jesus because she hardly knew anything herself, but she testified about what she did know. And that had a powerful effect. Oh, friends, we should always be striving to know God more. We should always be yearning for, working for, diligently to know him more fully, to know him more truly, to know him more deeply. But don't let your lack of theological knowledge or your lack of communication skills keep you from sharing what you do know about him. What you do know about the gospel. The gospel message is not a complicated one. This message that Jesus shared with this woman was not complicated. The reality of her sin, the grave condition that she was in, the reality of himself and his offer of salvation for all who would come to him rightly. God, like he did for this woman, can make whatever words you have adequate for the task, adequate for sowing, and reaping. You can tell people to come and see Jesus for themselves. You can tell them who he is and say, come and see. That's what the woman did, and the people came. In verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. What an amazing two days that must have been. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The, the woman's testimony brought them to Jesus. It's wonderful that they received her testimony, but it's much more important that they heard from him. The goal of our evangelism is not to tell people our story of what God has done in our lives and let it sit right there. The goal of evangelism is to bring people to Jesus that they can meet him, that they can worship him rightly. That means getting them connected to a local church. That means pointing them to the word of God. This is how it works. We're called to proclaim the gospel, the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is not a complicated message. We can all do this. We can all proclaim this message. In fact, we're commanded to proclaim this message. Your testimony to an unbeliever is good. As you proclaim the lordship of Christ, as you even tell the, the, the change that has happened in your life because of his Holy Spirit, it may cause someone to believe, but what is more important is that they move from your testimony to the testimony of the Lord himself contained in 
the words of Scripture. So this is what they're saying to the woman. We believe not just because of what you said. We believe because of him. We believe not just because we can see that you are a different person, but because he has spoken to us. We have seen him. We have heard him ourselves. Friends, this is the Savior of the world. that's That's their declaration. After seeing the change in this woman, after meeting Jesus and hearing his word, they declare this is the Savior of the world. This is our Savior. This is our friend. He has offered living water of salvation. These these Samaritans had come to him and believed. Like the woman, they had come to know that they were in need of saving. That's why they call him the Savior of the world. They had come to see that they needed saving. They were sinners in need of rescue. They needed a Savior. They needed someone to deliver them. And, And everyone is in that same place. Everyone who has ever lived is in need of a Savior. The people that you talk to, the people in your lives that you love, your family members, your, your co-workers, your friends, they are in need of a Savior. That person you, you have a, a random conversation with on an airplane or in a store, they're in need of a Savior. That person screaming in your face, flipping you off, threatening to punch you, they're in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. There's only one Savior of the world. Only one who can deliver from the righteous wrath of God. When, when they call Jesus the Savior of the world, it's not that he's going to save everyone in the world. It's that in all the world, there's only one Savior. There's only one place to point people, and we know what it is. Imagine when all of this had started a year and a half ago with COVID, if it had actually been what they said it was going to be, and the whole world was just going to die. But you had the antidote. You wouldn't be embarrassed about that. Even if people thought you were dumb, you'd be like, no, this literally will save you. We know what it is. We know the answer. There's one Savior and we know Him. He loves us. We love Him. His Spirit lives in us. This is the Jesus we proclaim, the Savior of the world, the one who is ruling and reigning. We are not called to be the smartest people in the world, thank God. We are not called to be the greatest communicators who can answer any question that anyone throws at us, but we are called to go. We are commanded to go. We are called to proclaim this gospel. Christian, you are commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to preach this gospel. There's not one of us that has an exemption card. We preach Christ. We preach him crucified. We preach the risen, ruling, reigning Savior of the world. We preach that sinners who come to him in humble faith and submission will receive from him eternal life. This is the good news. This is the gospel, and it is our mission to carry this gospel, this saving message, to proclaim this truth in love to sinners who desperately need to hear it, and may the Lord make us faithful to do this. Every one of us, faithful. It's not just our mission as the church. 
It is our mission as the church. But brother, sister, this is your mission. This is your mission. What we do here together on a Sunday morning, my voice isn't carrying anywhere beyond these walls. It is our mission individually to proclaim this gospel to the world, to call people to submission and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, we can do this. You can do this. George Whitfield said, other men may preach the gospel better than I do, but no man can preach a better gospel. There is one gospel and it has been given to us, and you can understand it. You hear it preached every single week. We're called to proclaim it. So brothers and sisters, let's proclaim this good news, that Jesus is the Savior of the world to a world that is dying. Let me just close with one practical way you can do it. I'm going to give you a place and a time. And if you're freaked out about proclaiming the gospel... I'm going to tell you where you can do it and when you can do it, and you won't even be all alone. It's 10 a.m. Saturday morning, Whole Women's Health in South Bend. Gather together with the church to proclaim the Lordship of Christ, to proclaim the gospel. Let that jumpstart you into stepping out in bold faith. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Thank you for this gospel. Lord, this good news that we sinners, Lord, this woman, this woman is not worse than me. Those Samaritans are not worse than me. They're no more idolatrous. They're no more wicked. They're no more undeserving. Yet you have showered your grace on me in abundance. Lord, many of my brothers and sisters here in this room have that same testimony, undeserving sinners in the grip of your grace. Lord, I pray that we would be so gripped by this grace, so amazed by your grace, so in awe of you, our God, that we would, like this woman, be eager to call others to come and see. Lord, that we'd be eager to invite people to come, even to this gathering, that they can be among your people as we worship you. Lord, that we would proclaim this good news in all kinds of ways to those we encounter, those you have, have given to us in our lives. Lord, I pray you'd give us boldness. I pray you'd give us courage. I pray you'd put steel in our spine because the days are evil. Lord, that our confidence, our hope would be in you and we would proclaim this truth in love. Lord, by your spirit, cause your love to overflow in us that though we may be called judgmental, it wouldn't be true. Though we may be called bigots, it wouldn't be true. Lord, we want to be faithful. We pray that you would make us faithful. Cause us as a church, cause Maple Grove Church and each one of us individual members to be increasingly faithful in the days ahead. For your glory, we pray this. For your people's Eternal joy, we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.